Chapter 15 of Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Mazzacci. Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future by Cicely Hamilton, Chapter 15. It was clear to him, so soon as he knew of his coming fatherhood, that in spite of the drawbacks of winter traveling, his long-deferred journey of exploration must be undertaken at once. The companionship of men, and above all of women, was a necessity to be sought at the risk of any peril or hardship. Hence, with misgiving, he broached the subject to Ada next morning, and in the end, with smaller opposition than he had looked for, her lesser fears were mastered by her greater that the certain future danger of unaided childbirth might be spared her, she consented to the present misery of days and nights of solitude, and together they made preparations for his voyage of discovery in the outside world and her lonely sojourn in the camp. As he had expected, her first suggestion had been that they should break camp and journey forth together, but he had argued her firmly out of the idea, insisting less on the possible dangers of his journey which he strove rather to disguise from her than on her own manifest unfitness for exertion and exposure to December weather. Once more, the habit of wifely obedience came to his assistance and her own, and she bowed to her overlord's decision, if cheerfully, without temper or sullenness. While the decision once taken, it was he and not Ada who lay wakeful through the night and conjured up visions of possible disaster in his absence. His imagination was quickened by the new strange knowledge of his responsibility, the protective sense it had awakened, and lying wide awake in the still of the night, it was not only possible danger to Ada that he dreaded, he was suddenly afraid for himself. If misfortune befell him on his journey into the unknown, it would be more than his own misfortune. On his strength, his luck, and well-being depended the life of his woman and her unborn child. If evil befell him and he never came back to them, if he left his bones in the beyond, at the thought the sweat broke out on his face and he started up shivering on his moss bed. He worked through the day at preparations for the morning's departure, which, if simple, demanded thought and time, saw that plentiful provision of food and dry fuel lay ready to his wife's hand so that small exertion would be needed for the making of fire and meal. For his own provisioning, he filled a bag with cooked fish, chestnuts, and the like, store enough to keep him with care for five or six days. All was made ready by nightfall for an early start on the morrow, and he was awake and afoot with the first reddening of a dull December morning. Fearing a breakdown from Ada at the last moment, he had planned to leave her still asleep, but the crackling of a log he had thrown on the embers roused her, and she sat up, pushing the tumbled brown hair from her eyes. You're going? she asked, with a catch in her voice, and he avoided her eye as he nodded back. Yes, and slung his bag over his shoulder. Just off, he told her, with blatant cheeriness. Take care of yourself and have a good breakfast. There's water in the cook pot, and mind you look after the fire. I've put you plenty of logs handy, more than you'll want till I come back. Goodbye. You might say goodbye properly, she whimpered after him. He affected not to hear and strode away whistling. He had purposely tried to make the parting as careless and unemotional as his daily going forth to work. Purposely, 
Therefore, he did not look back until he was too far away to see her face. It was only when the trees were about to hide him that he turned, waved, and shouted, and saw her lift an arm in reply. She did not shout back. He guessed that she could not. And when the trees hid him, he ran for a space, lest the temptation to follow and call him back should master her. He had planned out his journey, often enough during the last few months, considering the drift of the river and lie of the country and attempting to reduce them to map form on the soil by the aid of a pointed stick. His idea was to make, in the first place, for the silent village which had hitherto been the limit of his voyaging, and thence to follow the road beside the river which, in time, very surely, must bring him to the haunts of men. Somewhere on the banks of the river, beyond the tract of devastated ground, must dwell those who drank from its waters and fished in them, who perhaps, now the night of destruction was over and humanity had ceased to tear at and prey upon itself, were rebuilding their civilization and saving their treasures from ruin. The air, crisp and frosty, set him walking eagerly, and as his body glowed from the swiftness of his pace, a pleasurable excitement took hold of him. His sweating fears of the night were forgotten, and his brain worked keenly, adventurously. Somewhere, and not far, were men like unto himself, beginning their life and their world anew in communities reviving and hopeful. Even, it might be, he began to dream dreams, communities comparatively unscathed, with homes and lands unpoisoned, unshattered, living ordered and orderly lives. Some such communities the devils of destruction must have spared. If a turn in the valley should reveal to him suddenly a town like the old towns with men going out and in, he quickened his pace at the thought, and the miles went under him happily. He was no longer alone, even when he entered the long waste of coarse grass and blackened tree that lay around the dead village, its dreariness was peopled with his vivid and hopeful imaginings, of a crowd that hustled to hear his story, that questioned and welcomed, and was friendly, and led him to a house that was furnished and whole, where were books and good comfort and talk. So, in pleasant company, he trudged until well after midday, when, perhaps discouraged by the beginnings of bodily weariness, perhaps affected by the sight of the stark village street, his unreasonable hopefulness passed and anxiety returned. He grew conscious suddenly and acutely of his actual surroundings, of silence, of the waste he had trodden, of the desolation about him, of the unknown loneliness ahead, that, above all, the indefinite, on-stretching loneliness. He hurried through the dumb street nervously, listening to his own footsteps, the beat and the crunch of them on a frozen road, their echo against deserted walls, and at the end of the village he turned with relief into the road he had marked on his previous visit, the road that turned to run by the stream a few yards beyond the bridge. It wound dismally into a scorched little wood, not one live shoot in it, a cemetery of poison trees. Then on, still keeping fairly close to the stream, through the same long waste patched with grassland spreading weed. The road through it narrowed and was overgrown and crumbling in places, was easy enough to follow for the first few hours, but he sought in vain for traces of its recent use. There was no sign of men or the works of man in use. The only token of his presence were, now and again, a fire-blackened cottage, a jumble of rusted, twisted ironwork, or a skeleton with rank grass thrusting through the whitened ribs. When the river rounded a turn in the hills, 
The prospect before him was even as the prospect behind, a waste and silence where corn had once grown and cattle pastured. As the day wore on, the heavy silence was irksome and more than irksome. It was broken only by the sound of his footsteps, the whisper of grass in a faint little wind, and now and again, more rarely, by the chirp and flutter of a bird. Long before dusk, he began to fear the night, to think, with something like craving, of the shelter and the fire and the woman beside it. That was home. The thought of hours of darkness spent alone amongst the whitened bones of men and the blackened carcasses of trees loomed before him as a growing threat. He pushed on doggedly, refusing himself the spell of rest he needed, in the hope that when night came down on him, he might have left the drear wilderness behind. It was a hope doomed to disappointment. The fall of the early December evening found him still in the unending waste, and when the dusk thickened into darkness, he camped, perforce, near the edge of the river, in the lee of a broken wall. The branches of a dead tree nearby afforded him fuel for the fire that he kindled with difficulty with the aid of a rough contrivance of flint and steel. And as he crouched by the blaze and ate his evening ration, he scanned the night sky with anxious and observant eyes. So far, the weather had been clear and dry, but he realized the peril of a break in it, of a snowstorm in shelterless country. If tomorrow were only as today, if the way stretched on without trace of man or sign of ending, what then? Would it be wise or safe to push on for yet another day, leaving home yet further behind him? For the journey back, the waste must be recrossed in whatever weather the winter pleased to send him, traversed by day and camped on by night, in hail, in rain, in snow. The thought gave him pause, since exposure might well mean death, and to more than himself. He slept little and brokenly, rousing at intervals with a shiver as the fire died down for want of tendance, and was on his feet with the first gray of morning, trudging forward with fear at his heels. It was a fear that pressed close on them with the passing of long, lonely hours, still wintry hours, wherethrough he strained his eyes for a curl of smoke or a movement on the outspread landscape. The day was yesterday over again, the same pale sky, the dull swollen river that led him on, and the endless waste of shallow valley. And when night came down again, he knew only this, a clump of hills that had been distant was nearer, and he was a day's tramp further on his way. He settled at sundown in a copse of withered trees which afforded him plentiful firing, if little else, in the way of shelter from the night. And having kindled a blaze, he warmed his food, ate and slept, too weary to lie awake and brood. He had not slept long, for the logs still glowed redly and flickered, when he started into wakefulness that was instant, complete, and alert. Something, he knew it, had stirred in the silence and roused him. He sat up, peered around, and listened with the watchful terror instinctive in the hunted, be the hunted beast or man. For a moment he peered around, seeing nothing, hearing nothing, but the whisper of the fire and the beating of his own heart. Then, in the blackness, Two points caught the firelight, eyes, eyes unmistakable that glowed and were fixed on him. He stiffened and stared at them, open-mouthed. Then, as a sudden flicker of the dying flame showed the outline of a bearded human face, he choked out something inarticulate and made to scramble to his feet. Swift as was the movement, he was still on a knee when someone from behind leaped on him and pinned both arms to his sides. 
As he wrestled instinctively, other hands grasped him. He was held and helpless, captive of three or four who clutched him by throat, wrist, and shoulder. By that token, he was back among men. End of chapter 15. Recording by Jennifer Mazzacci.